The sermon comes from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Joshua judges Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st Samuel chapter 10. So where are we now in the story? It's been a few weeks, I think three weeks, since we've actually preached in or heard sermons from 1st Samuel. So just to get you caught up, Israel has finally gathered and told Samuel they want a king. And God tells Samuel, don't be offended, they're not rejecting you only, they're rejecting me as their king. But he still said he would give them a king. He's going to give them what they wanted. He's going to give them what they lusted for, what they craved. And so God calls Saul to come to Samuel, if you remember, through some seemingly random events in his life. His dad's camels or camels. Donkeys got lost. He had to go chase them all over kingdom come. He eventually ends up in Samuel's house. And Samuel anoints him with oil in secret. And then Samuel tells him, as you go home, these three things are going to happen. You're going to meet these people here, and this and this and this is going to happen. You're going to meet these people here, and they'll say this, and they'll do this, and then you're going to meet these people here, and that will happen. And all of it happened. It was a sign to Saul that God had chosen him as king, and that Samuel was absolutely right in what he said. But now Saul's back home. Nobody knows that he's been anointed king because he hasn't told anyone. He seems a little bit terrified of the idea, and I don't blame him. So the text is 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 27. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they saw, sought him, they could not, he could not be found. They inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. Amen. Please be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, we pray today. This seems like almost a comedy. 
they rebel against God. They want to be like other nations. They want a king. God gives them a king. The king can't be found because he's hiding. This is a people that are lost. Their king is lost. Lost and confused. That's the title of the sermon. Lost and confused. Some of you in this room probably have never actually needed to use a map when you're driving. I realize it's hard to believe there was a time when you were in a big city, you better have a map. You better be able to figure out where you were. But I bet about, I don't know, 90% of people today use their phones to get from point A to point B. And some of you have only ever done that. You just follow the blue dot. You have no idea where you are. Where you're going, you just know that it says to go this way and this way. How does it relate to where you were? You have no idea. Not judging, I'm just saying, it's different. I remember when I learned to drive, I was in San Antonio, which at the time I think was the ninth largest city in America. It's still really big. But even at that time, in 1986, it was a massive place to learn to drive. I had to know how to read a map. Or bad things would happen. And here's what you would have to do. You find yourself on the map. I'm just, for you who have never done this, you who have done it, you probably know what I'm saying. You find yourself on the map, and you find out where you're going, and then you figure out all the roads you have to do to get there. But you have to orient your map if you're actually going to use it while you're driving, so you have to turn the road so that it's looking the same way you're driving, or it's going to be really hard when you start figuring that out. Unless you've learned how to just hold it with due north straight up. So once you've pulled out the map, once you kind of have mapped your way around, there's another step to that, and that's actually talking to people who've been there before you. You guys remember doing that? Like if it was really difficult, you'd call someone. Hey, I'm going to this place. I've never been there. Anything I need to know? Yeah, well, watch out for there. There's a roadblock here. There's giant bumps right there. This road is blocked off. Like all this stuff that is now automatic, you had to figure it out. So I would do that, especially if I was going downtown. I'd write down the directions as well. It's not just the map. I wanted to write it all down because in the heat of the moment, like sometimes you lose your spot and you're like, oh, what do I do? Oh, number six, turn right. Okay. I would do that. Then I would study the directions as well. Like I don't want to just look at it and go, okay, I figured out. I'm going to study this a little bit because if you're in rush hour, you're not going to have time to look at your map. You're just trying to survive. You also need to be ready to pull over. Like if you find yourself off course, pull over and reassess. There's no cell phones. You're not calling anyone unless you go to a pay phone or ask some person in a store to borrow their phone, which I've done. Anyone remember doing that? Walk into a store. Can I use your phone? Like, I'm lost. When you reach your spot, when you finally reach the destination, do you take these directions and just chunk them? No, you fold them up and you put them in your little direction file in your glove box because you might need these again. You remember what you've done. And if you fail to do any one of these steps, and you're in a big city anyway, you're probably going to end up lost, end up wasting time, end up wasting money, or in worst case scenario, you end up in a dangerous part of town. It's like, roll the windows up. You know, you're scared. confused and lost it's it's a hard place to be similarly we see that israel is lost apart from god's word the more they reject god and his word the more lost they get 
And we see that through Samuel, and then in Kings, they end up lost and weary and in grave danger, as will we all when we reject the word of God. So that's going to kind of frame what we're talking about is, how did these people become so lost and confused? Verses 19, 17 and 19, we're going to see the first point, that they're lost in rebellion against authority. They're lost in the rebellion against authority. We'll secondly see that they're lost in cowardice. They're just rejecting the call of God. And this is specifically calling out Saul. Verses 20 to 24. And finally, we'll see they're lost in rejection of God's word. Verse 25. Rebellion, cowardice, and rejection. Of course, this all points right back to us. This is us. We're not any better than these men or women. We do that. So let's talk about it. First, lost in rebellion against God's authority. First point. We see that in verses 17 to 19. Look at what God says. He calls the people to Mizpah, and he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. He's saying, I'm God. I'm the creator God. I've redeemed you. And yet, you still crave a human king. Okay, I'm going to give you a human king. Gather together at Mizpah. Mizpah is an important place in the history of Israel. There are probably a couple little towns named Mizpah, but this one was between Benjamin and the northern tribes. It was kind of a a middle ground. It was a border town between Jerusalem and Bethel. It's a central location. They would go there and meet. You remember just a few years before this, God had brought a great victory about at Mizpah. The Samuel called all the people there. They were coming back to God, and there was a great victory. God thundered upon the Philistines. Samuel set up his Ebenezer, his statue at Mizpah, and said, remember that God has always been with us. He's our supernatural, perfectly awesome king and protector. And yet they want a a human king. And it's no coincidence that 500 years later, Nebuchadnezzar destroys all of Jerusalem, destroys all of the land. He sets up his little puppet guy, Gedaliah, at Mizpah. And Mizpah is the place where Gedaliah is assassinated in chaos. This is Mizpah. It's a place where things happen. And look how God frames this, this momentous event, the choosing of a human king. He reminds them that they're rejecting the Almighty God, their heavenly king. Rather, they wanted a man. The language he uses here is reminiscent. It should remind you of what we read this morning, the Ten Commandments. Does anyone remember that? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the same language, isn't it? What's he saying? I saved you. I redeemed you from slavery. I conquered your enemies. I own you. You owe me worship. And what happens? It's kind of what's happening now. While Moses is still up on the mountain receiving God's law from God himself, what are the people of Israel doing down below? They're worshiping golden calves. They're worshiping idols. They're breaking the commandments that God's giving Moses while God is giving them the commandments. He's only been up there a week or two. And Aaron said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's pointing to the two calves he made. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. 
and tomorrow we will have a feast to Yahweh. You see what's happening? Aaron says, this is Yahweh. This is the Yahweh that we're going to worship. These two calves, they rejected the Almighty God, and they wanted to worship metal images that looked like animals. That's what it said in Romans. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Psalm 106 says, They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And this is the way of man. This is our temptation as well, to forget the God who's redeemed us. When he's absent in our minds, when he feels distant, we try to create something else that we can worship. Rejecting the loving and compassionate rule of our God for the bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we do. So in verse 19, it says, But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from your calamities and your distresses. And you have said, Set a king over us. God says, Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord. I'm going to choose a king for you. This is what you want. This is what you will get. And this has been the, re- the way of rebellion since the beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden, despising the grace of God and wanting their own way. The people of Israel rejecting their Savior and deliver in the wilderness, worshiping golden calves. The people of Israel here in 1 Samuel have quickly forgotten all of God's kindness, all that he's done, all of his mighty power, and now they want a human king. They're rejecting God for man. The creator is rejected for the creature. So God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. That's what happens. God will often give people over to their cravings. This serves two purposes. The impenitent are hardened in their disobedience. And the elect are shown their great need of God and the power of indwelling sin within them. Our confession says as much regarding the elect. Listen to what it says in the confession 5.5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for former sins or discover unto them the strength of hidden sins, the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support on himself, to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. That's one of the reasons why God will give people over to their cravings, to their sin, even the elect, even those who are Christians. How about for the wicked and ungodly? It says, as for the wicked and ungodly, whom God as a righteous judge for former sins doth blind and harden. From them he not only withholds upon their, his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. And withal gives them over to their own lusts and temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass they harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. 
So did you catch that? Some people are given over to their sins and it softens them. That's us, we hope. Other people are given over to their sins and it hardens them by the sovereignty of God. But regardless of what we know about God and His sovereignty, don't assume that because God allows you to live in your sin or your secret sins or your secret lusts, that somehow He approves of all this. Your selfishness is not approved by God. Your idolatry is not approved by God. Don't assume that just because God doesn't strike you down now, that there's some implicit okay about what's going on. Or maybe even closer to home, don't assume that because you come to church and read your Bibles, that God tolerates your sin. Galatians 6 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to his spirit will from his spirit reap everlasting life. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness, they built an idol and they called it Yahweh. That's what our hearts desire. We don't want the real God. We want a God that we can hold on to and control. We want a God that we can live with, that doesn't intrude on our daily lives, that doesn't require repentance, doesn't require anything from us, except what we are willing to give. We're called to serve God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Holy Spirit will sanctify every part of you. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't be a new creation. The old will not be gone and the new will not come. You'll be lost in your rejection of the Creator, like the Israelites, like Saul. Point two, lost in fear of God's call. Lost in cowardice and fear. Verses 20 through 24, we see this working out in the life of Saul. Saul is chosen by Lot. What's going on here? Well, what God has done in Samuel and Saul privately, like only those two knew about it, now God is doing publicly for everyone to see. This is the man I've chosen. It's a public thing now. This is a great grace, actually. God wants to put the kingship off on the best possible foot. He knows that there's always going to be people who say, oh, well, Samuel just picked him because he likes him. Or Samuel just picked him because he's tall. No, everyone is going to be there. Everyone's going to see the casting of lots and choosing of the man. Like Jonah was chosen on the boat. So Saul was chosen from among every single person in Israel by lot. This was the man God had chosen. Samuel wasn't doing it. God was doing it. Dr. Dale Davis says that Saul was just as lost as his father's donkeys. This Hebrew word to find is used in chapters 9 and 10 like 10 or 11 times. Over and over. To find. To find. There's a message there for us as well. Remember, it was only after talking to the man of God that Saul was able to find his donkeys. It was only after the word of God that the people were able to find a king. And then the Lord was the one who had to tell everyone where Saul was hiding. And they pulled him out, and he was taller than everyone else. He was physically impressive. So they pull him out of hiding. They bring him out in front of the multitude of the Israelites. He stands a head taller than everyone else, probably terrified. Everyone screaming, long live the king. 
And then he goes home. It seems kind of comical, doesn't it? Like, this is your king? This is it? God chooses the man. The man cannot be found. He's afraid to be noticed. How does this apply to our lives? God has called each one of us to himself. All of us who have faith have been called by God. Revelation 1.6 in the King James says we are kings and priests to God. In the ESV it says we are kingdom of priests to God. Regardless, we are all called to do the work of a king and a priest. By the mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to live holy lives in love for God and for the saints. And yet often we, like Saul, I think would rather hide than stand up and face our responsibilities as men and women of God. I think sometimes we're afraid to make changes in our lives. We're sometimes afraid to even serve God. We are part of his royal family if we have faith. My girls used to have little t-shirts when they were little that said, I'm a princess, son of the, or daughter of the king. I love that shirt. I mean, there's some truth there. I wish I had a shirt that said I'm a prince. Though I'm, I think it more applies to them, but I'm a princess, daughter of the king. That's each one of you, ladies. We're all part of a royal family, men. And now is the time for those changes in your life to be made. We shouldn't be hiding among the baggage any longer. We should be among those who say, long live the king, and we're ready to follow him anywhere. To stand up higher than the mediocrity of our culture. Or what Christianity is supposed to be according to other Christians of mediocre ability or thought. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and his word. Each one of us every day live courageously or cowardly. I don't think there's anything in the middle. You're either courageous for Christ or you're a coward. And God's calling us to be courageous, not to hide, to fix our eyes on Christ, to behold the glory of Christ in his word, in his work, to remember his wonderful life, his great obedience. This is what inspires us. Look at the life of Christ. Remember what he's done. And this inspires your heart to live for him. And often the hardest things are the things that we're called to do in private. Prayer. Study the scriptures. Submit your life to him in the small ways when no one's looking. Live holy for God. To love your neighbor. To control your thoughts even. To take your mind captive. When negative thoughts come into your mind about other people, just to take those captive and say, no, Lord, I don't want to think like that, and flip that into a prayer for that person instead. All of these little things, all of these are ways that God has called you to live for him, not to hide in the baggage. So we've seen rebellion and lostness. We've seen lostness through rebellion, rather. We've seen lostness through cowardness. And we don't want to be rebellious and we don't want to be cowardice. Finally, we see lost, lostness and rejection of the word of God. Verse 25, Samuel told the people of the rights and the duties of kingship and wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Remember, God is the one installing this king in Israel. God is. He gave the the people up to their craving for a king. But this is not an event that's apart 
from God's providence. Of course, Jesus Christ is the king in the line of David. This was part of his plan. He uses the sinful actions of mankind to accomplish all of his purposes, always. But he wrote down the rules of kingship. Would you look with me at Deuteronomy 17? It's the fifth book of the Bible, the last book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 17. So Israel is still in the wilderness. They're about to enter the promised land. And God is anticipating this moment. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14. This is in God's law. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and to possess it, and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like the other nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above, above his brother's, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Nothing was surprising God in this moment. Did you notice that the king shouldn't live in indulgent wealth or have a harem like other kings? Or look to other nations for salvation. What should he do? He should look to God and his word. This is powerful. I love it. The king was to be under the authority of God. And under the word of God. The word of God even came over the king. He had to write for himself a copy of the law. Approved by the priests. He had to write it out. And then he was supposed to read it every day. To fear God and remember that God was the one who placed him there. And remember that he's not more important than his brothers. He's not more valuable than his brothers. He's there to serve his brothers and sisters as king. It's a, an act of service. But there's a problem. We know through the history of Israel that the law of God is so rare in the palaces of the kings that sometimes when it's found, they're shocked. Remember in Josiah's day, the priest brings the law to Josiah and they said, hey, look what we found in the temple. It's this thing. It looks like it's written by God. It looks important. Should we read it? They all tear their robes. They can't believe they had never read the word of God. It had been generations. So forgotten was God's word. So forgotten was God's word by the kings through neglect, through disregard, through sin. I think the application for us is obvious. The word of God is also our guide and rule. 
And it wasn't just for kings. Remember in Deuteronomy 6? What did God tell every family? That from the moment you wake up to the moment you lie down, while you're walking on the way, while you're sitting down on the way, you need to talk about God. Talk about his word. Teach your families God's word. It should be something that's so prevalent in your minds, it's like it's hanging in front of your eyes. All of us need to prioritize the word of God. Or we will become like everyone else around us. That's what happened to Israel. We're no different. So if you are now struggling with just daily reading of the scriptures, now is the time to change. You need to be a man of the book, a woman of the book. God calls you to his word. And it might help to think of it this way. If you're not actually dedicating time every day to the scriptures, it's because you really don't think it's helpful in your life. Because if you thought it was going to help, you would do it, wouldn't you? You really don't fear God if you don't fear his word. If you don't reverence his word and cherish his word and eat it like manna every morning, just devour the manna. You remember how much the Israelites were told to get? When you go get manna, you get as much as you can eat. That's how much of his word we are to take every day. As much as we can eat our daily bread. Brother, sister, it should be like the treasure hidden in the field. You give everything up to go get that thing. You see God in his word. Apart from God's word, you cannot truly know him. Open your Bibles. Pray to the Lord. These are costly privileges that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ, owned and redeemed by the Savior. There's been so many, so many generations that didn't even have a copy of the Scriptures, and we have it. What a privilege. Even today, there are billions of people who don't have their, the Bible, and we do. We need to, like the kings, like the families that are described in Deuteronomy 6, we need to be pursuing the Word of God Pursuing God through his word, I should say, every single day. Come to him in humble repentance. Never stop starting over. Never give up in your pursuit of God through his word. He will help you. But to reject his daily bread is to be lost. To reject the map is to be lost in the city. So first we saw that they were lost in rebellion. We saw that others were lost by their cowardice. Finally, Israel becomes lost through time by rejection of God's word. In conclusion, we see in verses 26 and 27 that God is the one who changes our hearts. If you're thinking to yourself, this is really hard, Richard. I've tried before to pray every day. I've tried before to turn my heart to God. I've tried to change this one part of my life that just steeped in sin. It seems impossible to change my habits, to change my heart. It is impossible for you to change your heart a leopard can't change his spots the bible says but look what it says in verse 26 went who went with saul these were men of valor and this is the conclusion these were men of valor whose hearts god had touched and what i'm saying to each one of you is you are all men and women of valor and i believe that god is touching your hearts right now I don't know, but he does. God calls people to trust him. 
And the reactions of man to God's word have always been the same. Cain and Abel, there's one reaction that's good, one that's not. The time of Noah, the time of Israel and 1 Samuel, during Christ's ministry, during Paul's preaching and Paul's ministry, there are always two responses, right? Like we see here, God touches people's hearts and they follow God and his word. Or worthless fellows say, how can this man ever save us? Those are the same responses that have always existed. Those who embrace the word of God and those who scoff the word of God. And I call on all of you brothers and sisters, dearly beloved, be those who are constantly evaluating your hearts to see if you're in the faith. That your faith is genuine. Make sure there's no God or king that you've set up that you call Yahweh. That's really a God of your own making, a God you can control, a God who kind of does what you want, who requires what you think is reasonable, as opposed to what his word says is true. Like a king that lives without the word of God, reject the ways of the worthless fellows who says, how can this man ever save us? That man is Christ, and he's revealed in his word. And if you find that the life you live or the Christianity that you have is a shadow of true Christianity. Today's the day of God's favor. You know how many men have been pastors for decades and then gotten saved? They've heard the preaching of the gospel and finally God touches their hearts. Many. Do you know how many people have been seminary professors for decades and then gotten saved? Many. So who are you to think that maybe, maybe it's too late for you? Who are you to think that your your sin is so far gone that God cannot save you? Today is the day of God's favor. Turn your heart to God today. Embrace the man who can save you. Pray that God touches your heart. You cannot do this thing. Only God can change your heart. If you want faith, pray to God. John Owen says, pray to God for this faith and then continue to pray for God for days, for weeks, for months until he touches you, until he brings a new creation about in your soul and you have true faith and repentance. This decision to serve God today is only available by the power of the Holy Spirit. So come to God, run to him today. Run to Christ, my friends. Your life depends upon it. And without Christ, you will be lost. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. You will not chide us forever, but you will show us through your Spirit our great need of a Savior. You will change our hearts. Lord, give us a desire to pursue you. Give us a desire to read your scriptures. Give us a desire to embrace the authority of your word. Give us a desire to pray. Give us Jesus, we pray. We pray this all in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.